Welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me. And I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Father Charles Bouchard. Father Charlie is a Dominican priest and moral theologian and the Senior Director of Theology and Ethics at the Catholic Health Association. Healthcare is important to every American. It's also important for the Catholic Church, and that's why so many religious sisters started hospitals in this country. But there's a lot of tension around how healthcare is provided. I mean, there are questions about what is adequate and appropriate care. And Catholic healthcare facilities are targets of lawsuits from civil rights groups about the kind of care they provide, especially around fertility, artificial contraception, abortion, basically how you treat and care for women around our reproductive systems. And that comes into discussions of freedom. And in this case, also religious freedom. Are we free to care for people as we believe is appropriate care for the human person with our understanding of what it means to be a human person and how to properly treat them? And I also want to talk with Father Charlie because I'm sure you also have seen the headlines, Catholic hospital turns away women in crisis. Catholic hospital refuses to serve women. Catholic hospital you know, has inadequate health care for women. And I wanted to ask Father Charlie about that. I mean, is that true? I mean, are Catholic hospitals doing these things? And Father Charlie's on the inside, and he can give us a really deep look into the issue, deeper than any headline. It's not clickbait. It's what's the real deal? How are they operating on the ground with real patients coming in to see them in difficult situations? How do Catholic hospitals handle this? How do we deal with these thorny issues? Yes, we have these beliefs, but how do you apply them? And it's not so simple. And we have to go and look in the face of it, the individual that we are serving and the context and their needs and the moment and apply these principles in a way that gives authentic care for the human person in front of you. And this is Sometimes I think people don't want to delve into it because it does take some thoughtfulness. It does take some consideration. It does take some balancing. And I think oftentimes we want to look for things to be black and white. And a lot of times there's a lot of gray and judgment. And that's what I want to talk with Father Charlie about and help us understand what is really going on within Catholic healthcare. The Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media, and America is committed to hosting very real, honest conversations in the Catholic Church today. These conversations should educate, inspire, and challenge us to think more critically, more faithfully, and that's our mission. So if this podcast is meaningful to you, please support it by getting a digital subscription to America. Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up today. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Father Charlie Bouchard is up next. Father Charlie, thank you for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure, Gloria. You know, for our listeners, I bet they probably don't know the scope of Catholic healthcare in the United States. And so I'm hoping you can help us get the scope of how many people are served through Catholic health care, how many facilities are there, what do they do, anything like that to help us get an understanding of how big or small our footprint is in the healthcare care space. 
Yeah, Catholic healthcare in the United States is big. We have between six and 700 acute care hospitals and about 1,500 long-term care facilities and clinics. And those are just the ones that are members of the Catholic Health Association. And CHA is the membership organization or kind of the trade organization, if you will, for all of these Catholic entities. And we do three primary things at CHA. We provide educational services because if we're going to survive as Catholic healthcare, we need to prepare the laity to assume responsibility in a way that they never had before because of the diminishing number of sisters. We also do advocacy. We have an office in Washington, D.C. that just works with federal policy questions that affect healthcare. And we do a lot of consultation. We get calls from our members about ethical questions and, you know, other things. And we try to answer those. And we convene our members on important issues. So then what's the impact of Catholic hospitals in this country when you talk about what you were just saying just now? What's the impact? Well, we treat about one in seven patients in the United States every year. That comes to about, I think, 95 million patients a year. Uh, Many of our hospitals in the U.S. are some of the oldest hospitals in the country. They were almost all founded by women religious beginning in the the late 18th century, which largely coincided with the immigrants who came to the U.S. They, the Italians, the French, the Polish, the Germans, they came, the sisters came with them, and as soon as they got here, they founded schools and hospitals. And that's where most of Catholic health care came from. And the sisters really built Catholic America, literally. Right, right. And it's so interesting that A lot of challenges I am reading, at least, and I'm hearing about to Catholic healthcare is actually care of women. That's right. You know, that people want to challenge. It's it's so ironic. Women founded this, started this, got this going. And now the big challenge to Catholic healthcare is how we treat women. But before we get into that, you know, and I'm hearing it's started by women, I'm sure some people wonder, well, how does a priest... end up, you know, working in this area. Most people say, ah, is it, you know, you get ordained, you run off to a parish, never to be seen again. But you're doing this with Catholic Health Association. How did you end up doing this? Well, I belong to a religious order, the Dominicans, and we do sometimes go to parishes, but many of us teach and do scholarship. And so that was really how I got into it. I got an advanced degree in moral theology, intending to teach And then I gradually moved into the area of healthcare ethics, and that's where I've been for the last 15 years. So if we could look at what's happening with Catholic healthcare today, what would you say are some of the big challenges in Catholic healthcare? Well, at the moment, I think like every other, all other hospitals, our biggest challenge is staffing, you know, because Mm. of the problems that developed during COVID and burnout and a lot of people, a lot of our nurses and even physicians are retiring. That will pass eventually, we hope. But I'd say the other issues are reimbursement. Our hospitals, many of them struggle, especially those that are kind of safety net hospitals, hospitals that are in places that have limited healthcare resources. I think one of the other big issues that we face is what we call population health. In other words, there is a shift taking place here between hospital or healthcare as just expensive repair shops, as mm. somebody has referred to it. And what we're trying to do now 
is to change the whole way we look at healthcare so that we focus on trying to keep people healthy in the first place rather right. than just fix them when they get sick. So I'm glad to hear this because, you know, a lot of times people are under the impression, or at least seem to be under the impression that all Catholic organizations and institutions are just flush with cash and we're just so wealthy. So I imagine that lawsuits, mm -hmm. on top of all these other issues that you mentioned, that lawsuits pose a particular kind of threat to our existence. And for context for our listeners, Catholic hospitals and clinics conform to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops guidelines, which are called the Ethical and Religious Directives. And these directives prohibit a range of services that we as Catholics object to, and that would include artificial contraception, abortion, and sterilization. And the reasons why we do not provide these services is because we believe they're contrary to authentic health care. It's contrary to the flourishing of the human person and our understanding of sex and all these other things and how mm -hmm. God made us. So this comes into play into how we view and treat people that come into the hospital. And so despite the kind of high quality care that Catholic hospitals do provide, groups like the American Civil Liberties Union, also known as ACLU, sue Catholic hospitals. And they say that we deny health care to women by not providing these services. And so can you just give us an example of the kind of lawsuit or challenge that the Catholic Health Association faces in this area? Yeah, I think there are two big areas that we have these kind of problems. One of them is with women's care, as you suggested. And I think that reputation, which we've gotten for not giving women adequate care is undeserved. And I can say a little bit more about that. Uh, yeah. And there are often lawsuits about supposed denial of care or denial of appropriate care. And this usually revolves around crisis pregnancies, where there are pregnancies that become very problematic, you know, and lots of women have those. And people get information from somewhere about something that supposedly happened at this hospital where a woman was turned away or not provided with emergency contraception, which generally is never true. Right. The other big category that we've had lawsuits about is transgender care. Again, that mm -hmm. we refuse to deal with those patients or to accept them. Again, that's not true, although there are some procedures we don't do. Right, right. So, you know, I was thinking about the emergency contraception, contraception pregnancy. So a lot of times, you know, I remember in Washington, D.C., there was discussion about what do you do with someone that comes, shows up at the hospital and they say they've been raped and things like that. Or what happens when someone comes to the hospital, they're pregnant and they are having a crisis health situation. You know, I'm thinking the only thing I can think of right now is preeclampsia, but there's so many right. other things I know. And what preeclampsia is like the high, high blood pressure and it has mm -hmm. all these impacts to the mother and the child that she's carrying. What happens is the woman and her child in her womb show up and it's a precarious situation mm -hmm. for both of their lives or either or, you know. And so the hospital is going to try to care for both patients. I want people to realize that there are two patients there when somebody shows up pregnant. That's right. So help us, you know, understand what happens then in, in that case when they show up. If you could walk us through just high level. Yeah, I think your point about there being two patients is really the foundation of the way we provide care. And it's a source of some disagreement obviously, with other people in society who 
really don't see the child as of equal value to the mother. So let's take the case of emergency contraception. The ACLU and other groups have charged that we don't take care of assault victims when they come to us. That is absolutely not true. I don't know of any Catholic hospital that would turn away a woman who has been sexually assaulted. We provide the same treatment that any other hospital would provide. We even provide contraceptives to prevent a pregnancy from that sexual assault. I think where the misunderstanding has come from is that these hospitals, when we are called on to provide that kind of emergency care, we want to have a forensic nurse there on site, someone who is specially trained to gather evidence and to care for a victim in case, in the event that we can file criminal charges. There have been a few cases in which a patient was transferred to another hospital because there was no forensic nurse on duty. And Mm -hmm. I think those were interpreted as being, oh, you turn this woman away and you wouldn't care for her. That's not the case. We've got these specially trained nurses who are called sexual assault nurse examiners. And uh, we want to have somebody. That's right. Same. In the case of, you know, preeclampsia or pulmonary hypertension, other conditions that occur in pregnancy, again, we're not going to turn anybody away. We're going to treat them as fully as we can, but we are not going to deliberately kill a child in order to save the mother's life. But we do make a distinction between a direct abortion, where we'd simply end a child's life in order to save the mother, and circumstances in which a treatment may unintentionally but unavoidably result in the death of the child. But we're not going to do it as a means to an end. Right. It's never the intention to go in and end the life of the child on right. purpose. Right? right. That's never the intention. And I noticed some listeners, they, they're probably like, what do you mean you provide contraceptives to survivors of sexual assault? Could you walk us through that? Yeah, I think the difference is that in a normal marital relationship, the use of contraceptives could be just to avoid a pregnancy. You know, we don't want to be bothered or we don't want another child. Sexual assault is a very different situation. So when we provide contraceptives in that case, what we're trying to do is to limit the damage done to the patient by the perpetrator. And we are counting on the fact that probably there is no pregnancy, that ovulation probably has not taken place. So we're kind of, you know, making a bet here and taking a risk, but we do it for the sake of the woman who has been assaulted. So the difference being the likelihood of uh, pregnancy or by that time, uh, conception and implantation is slim to none by the time the victim comes in. But as in the case of giving the contraceptive is to try to get ahead of a possible conception, not to work after a possible conception. So I want people to hear that and understand that and know that the intention is completely different from what happens in consensual relations that are trying to thwart the natural outcome of a sexual act. Completely different uses, completely different intentions. And what the hospital is doing is not in violation of our understanding as Catholics. And this is why I love our faith is there's a lot of nuance and we think through things and we're trying to look at what is the proportionate good, I guess, Mm -hmm. in the case of trying to treat 
a survivor of sexual assault. Now, on the flip side, you know, we've talked about what we think and what we believe somewhat about treating women. What is the ACLU's argument? What is it that they're alleging that we do? Well, you know, I always find the ACL's attacks, if you will, on Catholic health care to be, I think they're hard to understand because if you look at the website for the ACLU and the website for the Catholic Health Association in terms of our advocacy priorities, for example, they're almost identical, you know, on issues like criminal justice, uh, voting rights, capital punishment, disability rights, juvenile justice, prisoners' rights, all of these things we Mm -hmm. agree on. And yet there are these areas, especially related to reproduction, in which we diverge. And I think in some ways, you know, there are groups out there, including Merger Watch, which go after the church because we're an easy mark. I mean, Uh. especially in women's care. You know, you look at a church that only ordains men. Okay, that's one strike against you. You look at the sexual abuse scandals, the clerical abuse scandals we've been to. That's another strike against us. And so you can kind of go after the Catholic Church and Catholic health care and make a case. We can be an easy enemy in a way. And I think that's unfair. Well, I also think, strategically speaking, considering the number of people that we serve, if they were to get us to be able to fold (laughs) on our values regarding the human person, then they've cleaned up in terms of the culture, in terms of how healthcare will be shaped and formed and viewed. And so I I feel like we're still the conscience of healthcare, if you will. And we're kind of pesky, probably, to some people um, (laughs) in, in that regard. And so it'd be nice if we would go away. But I also perceive that they have characterized our healthcare as having some sort of malice toward women. Well, that's far from true. I mean, as I have often said, most Catholic hospitals were founded by women and largely for women and children, historically. And we certainly bear no malice toward women. It's just that we do have principles which relate to human dignity and the value of all life, which we're not going to violate. But it is certainly not born of any, any hostility or malice toward women. We'll be right back. It seems to me that the kinds of things that the ACLU is saying, it's almost, well, it's not almost. They're saying that we give substandard care, Mm -hmm. basically, to women in this area. And so I started to think about, well, what, or they'll say we need adequate and appropriate care. Women have a right to this. So who defines that? I mean, what is adequate and appropriate care? vis-a-vis women? Well, there you know, are standards of care for just about every condition, and I think we comply with all of them. But we do stop short of saying that sterilizations and abortions are standard care. Right. You know, in fact, we don't see them, especially abortions, as care at all. Right. And I think, again, it goes back to our understanding of the human person. All of the things that the ACLU supports very much are part of the common good you know, how we live together, how we depend on one another. But then when we get to these reproductive issues, suddenly human dignity rooted in the common good becomes free choice. Now, I don't know how we make that shift, but that's where we draw the line. Choice is a part of human dignity, but it's not the same thing as human dignity. 
Oh, go into that a little bit more. Well, I I would see, you know, I think sometimes pro-choice advocates make free choice an end in itself. Okay, we're free. We got a choice to choose whatever we want to choose. And I think in the Catholic view, God gave us free choice to choose good or evil, but it's not just choosing anything we feel like. In other words, the most authentic kind of free choice is a free choice toward virtue and toward goodness. And we have that choice. But I think in our society, we've gotten into an understanding of human freedom or freedom of choice as being just kind of indifferent. You know, it's like choosing a red jelly bean or a yellow one. doesn't make any difference in the end. We think it does make a difference in the end. And it also has been interesting to me that the same sort of arguments used to support, let's say, abortion, that, you know, I need to have this individual choice The ACLU would probably criticize people using that same argument to avoid taking vaccines. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But it's so it's the same principle. If if all that it is about is that I have the ability to choose and that is what is the good, then you really can't criticize people that refuse to take vaccines, whatever the vaccine is that we know is good for um, public health. There's more to the question rather than just the ability to choose. And so I think we have to have those kinds of conversations and help people understand that's where we as Catholics are are coming from. We're looking at, well, what is it of all the things that can be done? What is good? What is evil? And then where do we go from there? And so why do you think the ACLU characterizes things in that way vis-a-vis what we do? Well, Gloria, that's a good question. I think part of it is because of very effective lobbying by some women's groups and some Mm. feminists who have managed to reframe this notion of choice in isolation from the common good and from the other things that are necessary for human dignity. And Mm. I think that that idea of choice has just been very appealing to people. I mean, today, you know, with the vaccine crisis that you mentioned, People have picked up that same language about vaccines. Well, it's my body, my choice. Exactly the same words abortion proponents use. And Mm -hmm. it's appealing. We all like to feel we're free, but we're not that free. (laughs) You know, we do have to look at the implications of our choices and where they lead us. Well, it's also strange to me to believe that I can make a choice absent consideration of the other human persons around me. Right. You know, uh, in my family, in my womb, in my community, it's just a very different worldview, I think, to act in isolation from other people as if we aren't connected in some way. Everything is connected. And I think our way is beautiful, actually. I like the fact that, you know, we think about, well, how does this harm the least among us? How does this serve those who are disadvantaged? How do we treat the elderly at the end of their lives? Mm -hmm. I think all of these things call us to a greater love rather than a, I guess I would call it a Mm self-centeredness and only looking inward at myself and what makes me most happy without consideration for anyone else. And I think, I mean, I just living, growing up in a family, that would be an unhealthy family if we operated in that way. And so understanding we are a part of the human family How could it not then follow that this would be harmful to the entire human family if we operated in this way, you know? And you also, you can't, it's true in a family, and you also cannot build a society if everybody's primary value is radical autonomy. 
I mean, everything mm. falls apart at that point. And Catholic social teaching, which has developed over centuries, you know, values above all the common good, which is very countercultural in the United States, and yeah. solidarity, which means that everything's connected or all of us are connected, even to people who are geographically or ethnically or economically distant from us. That's a mm -hmm. bedrock principle in Catholic teaching. I think another problem in the U.S., at least, is that we don't have a shared understanding of what the early embryo is. Mm. You know, nobody wants to engage that question because they're, both sides are afraid they're going to lose ground. But if it's not a human person, then what is it? And right. when does it become a human person, you know, then? And we just don't spend any time talking about that. So, you know, but do we have to have, because I keep thinking, of course, of the status of Black people in history in the United States, and we don't have to have a consensus for something to be true. Like, there was not a consensus that the Black person was a person and, mm -hmm. and to be treated, you know, they were treated as property under the law. But I would say from observation and from reason and from also our understanding of how God made us, we would know certainly they are. They are persons. Yeah. But for other reasons, people were able to jettison that for reasons of, you know, pursuing wealth because you could exploit this labor, exploit these people as property. So, you know, when I hear that we don't have a consensus, I think back to that and I think, but we can know the truth, right? We can right. still know the truth. We can reason through the truth and be okay with the fact that there are going to be others that are not there yet or just are going to outright reject it. But I will say this, how do we, though, have a dialogue with these people who frankly disagree with us or maybe even just have hold up freedom as the end all be all? Yeah, I think that you're right about consensus, although in political life, you do need some kind of a consensus to move ahead. Yeah. And certainly the consensus changed late, but it changed about you know, about Black people and society and their humanity. Yeah. But you're right. We can't, I don't believe we can solve this abortion problem legally through legal interdiction. We have mm -hmm. to try to persuade people of the truth of our convictions about this. And even Catholics have argued about, you know, when does the soul enter the developing child? Well, the problem is we don't know. You can't see a soul with a microscope. Right. And so we don't know. Well, Father Charlie, you know, one of the things for me that I think about is I think about the fact that God himself came through that same developmental process that we all, all humans do. And so that ought to tell us that there's something super special and sacred mm -hmm. about the human person at all stages of development. Right. And while we may not know when the quote unquote soul is there and soulman occurs, I think Jesus's conception Mm -hmm. And development in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mother really is a, a sign to us, a teaching to us that we should maybe meditate on more, you know? So let's walk through a little bit, if you don't mind, explaining how Catholics apply moral reasoning. Some people say in moral theology, we're always assessing risk and we're trying to do the proportionally right thing. When we say we're assessing risk, risk of what? I think risk of sin often Unfortunately, moral questions are usually not absolutely black and white. You know, they right. involve a mixture of good and evil. And moral theologians use the idea of proportion a lot. You know, you do one thing and it may have a good effect and a bad effect. This comes up in a lot of medical questions. 
And mm. so you have to ask, well, is the good effect good enough to tolerate what is also going to happen that we consider to be a bad effect? So we're always weighing, like any medical treatment that anybody is considering, the fundamental question is balancing burdens and benefits. Is this going to help me more than it's going to hurt me or make me uncomfortable? We all do that. Every time we have any kind of procedure, we make that judgment. Mm -hmm. So that proportionality, it's not just, you know, sophistry or our legal trick. It's really trying to weigh human goods in light of what we're trying to achieve. And it's complex, you know. Yeah. And we have the guidance of scripture and revelation. But I think it's really important to remember that in the Catholic tradition, in addition to the Bible and revelation, we also can depend on reason, on our reasonable reflection on human nature, because God has planted his plan in us as human persons. And if we reflect carefully on our own life, on our lives together, we can learn something about what God has intended for us. And that's, I think, so important for people to understand that reason does come into play in our decision making. And I also think people need to understand that a sin comes in. We have to assess that as well, Mm -hmm. which is so different, I think, when I hear other types of reasoning for why people want to do something, the whole notion of sin is completely absent. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how you can arrive at a place where you you can say, I have this individual freedom to do whatever I want to do and not consider anyone else because they aren't considering relations, relations right. among other humans and relations with God. Mm-hmm. And I, I do find also, I will say, Father Charlie, that people try to come up with the most exceptional case as if that then breaks the whole rule. Right. And I think that's the flaw because that's not how we operate at all. Could you maybe talk about that a little bit? Yeah. And I think that's especially true in healthcare, you know, in these very complicated decisions, which most of us can't even assess. You know, you need to be a medical specialist. I think Mm -hmm. for us, it's, you know, we need to avoid those kind of extremes, picking Mm -hmm. these outrageous examples. And realize that every choice requires the virtue of prudence, as Catholics would talk about it, which is that kind of wisdom of knowing what ought to be done in this particular case, even though it's very Mm -hmm. complicated. And, you know, ethicists say that the more you get into detail, the more the general rule fails. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. like something is always true except when it's not, as a doctor will (laughs) say, you know, well, I'm going to give you this treatment. It always works for patients except when it doesn't. And you want a doctor that knows how to deal with that exceptional case. Yeah. And I know we've talked a lot about abortion here, but people have to realize that Catholic hospitals, Catholic healthcare is equally concerned with life after birth. I mean, a lot of probably a lot of the people that you see in hospitals treat are already already born and dealing with some kind of health issue that brings them to the hospital. So I want to make sure people understand that. And, you know, end of life care, I know is a big issue as well. But, you know, one of the things that I keep coming back to, because maybe I feel like, you know, it's something that we need to struggle with is when we encounter people that keep holding up freedom as the end all be all, we have to be able to talk with them and we have to be able to convey our understanding of freedom, our understanding of how our conception of freedom will necessarily impact how we approach and deal with 
and treat, you know, in terms of healthcare, other people as well. Do you have any examples of when you've had to talk with people that have that different view of freedom? And how do you have these conversations, Father? Well, I think dialogue is critical to living together in a society, but it's really difficult today because of polarization. And people are backed into their own corners, and then they embrace this notion of radical freedom so that I don't have to talk to anybody. I can make my own choices, like the vaccine debates. That's a good yeah. good example of this. Now, some people are not going to be convinced. You know, it's right. as simple as that. But we are... Catholics operate out of a different understanding of the person, you know, one that's communal, one that is part of a bigger system, a bigger community. And that's not always easy to get across in our society. Yeah. So I'm hearing that we just have to be okay with struggling and having these conversations, but not to abandon our values for the sake of getting along. You know, we're going to try to dialogue and we're going to try to help people understand where we're coming from. But what we aren't going to do is just abandon (laughs) our beliefs, right? Right. And we do need to keep up the conversation. As I said, I don't think we can solve these problems legally. So we need to keep going back into the public policy debate and say, this is how we understand it. And this is why we think it's important. You know, some religious groups don't do that. They don't go into the public sphere the political sphere because they don't want to get contaminated. Okay, Mm -hmm. I understand that. That's not the kind of church we are. For better or worse, we get into politics, we get into the fray. Is there a risk of getting compromised? Yeah, but we're willing to take that risk. I, I will say this. I do think legal remedies are a part of sort of changing things. Not alone, of course, but I do think that they are a part of trying to change some of the injustices that I think Mm -hmm. uh, people experience in a number of areas. But you're right that laws alone don't convert hearts, which is why we have to stay involved in having the kinds of conversations that we do have. Well, I'm, I'm thankful that you're with Catholic Health Association and you're thinking through these things and offering to me and my listeners a little peek inside what's happening in Catholic healthcare and some of the big challenges that you're, that you're facing. Well, it's been a real pleasure to be with you today, Gloria, and I'm also grateful for what you do, helping to get this richer context of Catholicism out and make it available to people, because we get pigeonholed, you know, we people look at Catholics and say, well, I know what that's all about. Well, even right. most Catholics don't know what we're all about. We have this incredible <laughs> tradition, and yeah. we need to make the most of that. Amen. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purpose podcast and journeying with me through these important and sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member and be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purpose podcast on your podcast app. Leave us a review if you can. I would love to hear from you. And by the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Sebastian Gomes and engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.